Good to see you all this morning. Uh, it's good to be back. I've been missing you guys a little bit. Uh, I went with some folks to Israel for a couple of weeks. Just had a wonderful trip there. Uh, you know, no matter how, time, how many times you've been, you always learn something new. And it's just great to see the land where our Lord Jesus walked. If you haven't done that, you ought to put that on your bucket list to get to the, the land of Israel. And then I was out of town for some missional meetings uh, last week. But now you just tell me, do we, we have good teachers these past three weeks? All right. All right. It really is a joy to be on a teaching team with these guys. And they're all doing such a wonderful job. And I enjoyed listening in uh, uh, later on. Hey, uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. And uh, let's pick up the uh, discussion of the Apostle Paul here. Uh, obviously, uh, he has been speaking about issues that are in the Corinthian church that are threatening the very integrity of the gospel itself. We started off by looking at divisions within the church. When we divide up based on human personalities in the church, we're denying the gospel of Christ. He, he alone died for us. He alone provides for us eternal life. No human being, no matter... Uh, how important a person they may have been to you, they're nowhere near as important to you as Jesus Christ. So there should be no grounds for us to divide up based on human personalities. We saw that in chapters 1 and 2 and actually in 3 as well. And then in 4, we looked at the, the root of all of this. It has to do with humility. It also has to do with understanding the already and the not yet. And the problem in Corinth was they were trying to claim everything for now some of which is not supposed to be now, it's supposed to come later, including riches. God is merciful to us. He gives us bread to eat, and sometimes he gives us a lot of money. But that's not a result of a promise in the scriptures. Uh, that's a promise that we will inherit that one day, but the timing of it is at the resurrection. And the Corinthians were thinking that because they're Christians, they're going to live like kings. Uh, and Paul says, funny thing, if you're a king and I'm at the end of the parade like a prisoner, and I'm an apostle. Uh, so he said, you imitate me. I'm not going to imitate you. So we saw that in chapter 4. Humility and patience uh, are necessary. And then we got to chapter 5, and we see that Paul enters into a discussion about sexual immorality in the church of a sort that even scandalized the pagans. Now, you got to be pretty bad to scandalize the pagans. And the Christians were scandalizing the pagans. And they were boasting about it because they were saying, look at the freedom we have as believers. We're forgiven. Uh, we're, our spirits are saved. And we can just do whatever we want to with our bodies. And they were going beyond what even the pagans were doing. That was amazing. And Paul then uh, engages with them on that and also teaches them that the body of Christ must be a disciplined body, just like any functional family. And Barton taught us on that. And then we came to, to chapter 6, the beginning of the chapter, where Paul shows how we resolve our problems on the inside of the family. We don't take family members to an outside court. We must resolve things among ourselves in our own family. So, for example, if we have, if we have disagreements with one another, we're to resolve them within the church. If we have two believers, and if it's an individual um, conflict, not a conflict between two companies. Companies aren't Christians. People are. So if you have a conflict between two companies, you may very well go to civil court. But two individuals who have a conflict, we resolve it uh, among ourselves. And Paul even says, you're better off defrauded than to shame the family by asking a non-family member to resolve your conflict. Now, by family, I mean church, of course. So we are to resolve our differences within the church. And those of you who have experience or training in mediation or in legal services, uh, you can be a particularly helpful because we Christians can get into some pretty complex conflicts. So we, we need the gifts and the help of people with special training, of course. But we saw that as we studied that last week, uh, as Todd taught us. Now today, we're coming to verse 12 in chapter 6, and Paul is continuing his discussion, or resuming his discussion, actually, about sexual immorality. Here's the difference when we come to verse 12. In chapter 5, he had discussed things they were doing that scandalized the pagans. Now he's going to talk about something that was common among the pagans. 
So in chapter 5, he's rebuking them because they're going beyond even what the pagans are doing. In chapter 6, he's rebuking them because they're doing what the pagans do. Either one of them is bad. The first one is the worst. But this is bad too. They're allowing pagan sexuality to define sexuality for them. They're allowing also some pagan ideology to drive their sexuality. We're going to see how that works even in, in our own day. And Paul is rebuking them and showing them, no, you've got to rethink everything. When you become a follower of Christ, you, you start over and rebuild everything in your life, including your sexuality, based upon your ideology or, in this case, your theology. And you do it very carefully, very intentionally, and in a very disciplined way. The reason that you find a significant amount of material in the New Testament on sexuality is precisely because this was an area where the Christians differed from their surrounding culture in the first century in a very stark manner. And just as we do, we bring habits from the world and from our old wives' sayings and from everything else that we've read in, in our colleges and universities. We just bring that right into the church and sometimes thoughtfully, thoughtlessly just continue those practices. In the same way in the first century, that's exactly what they did. They brought practices uh, into the church that were completely inappropriate. They just did it thoughtlessly. And Paul's going to say, think again. Start all over. One of the practices that was very common in the Greco-Roman world was the use of prostitutes. Even at the age of a teenager, the use of prostitutes was not denied the men. And uh, you can see, I've given you a quote here from um, uh, Demosthenes, who was speaking about, this is on page two of your notes, or I don't know what page it is, but it's under, it's under Roman numeral 2C. I've got a quote there. Let's go ahead and look at that. Demosthenes, in his orations, was speaking about how people thought in the first century, and he said, this is the way they think. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That was typical thinking. It was culturally acceptable. I would say that the parallel in our day, if we think of the things that are scandalous and the things that are non-scandalous, things that are scandalous in our day, even among the pagans, would be bestiality, except in Arkansas. Uh, just teasing. Uh, uh, just teasing, just teasing, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, you know, the few of you from Arkansas, I just have to wake you up in the morning, you know. That, that first cup of coffee just didn't get it. Now I got you mad, and you're, you're alive now. All right, got your attention. Uh, bestiology, uh, certainly uh, pedophilia, uh, sex with children, that's considered scandalous even among pagans. And uh, if we think of sexual immorality that's acceptable, uh, let's say sleeping with your girlfriend before marriage. That's considered generally acceptable. And then increasingly, of course, homosexuality uh, would be considered acceptable in culture. So what Paul's doing is addressing both the things that are considered scandalous and the things that are considered non-scandalous by the outside culture and trying to show the church that the standards for scandal in the culture are not the standards we use. We've got completely different standards. So let's go back. Paul says, let's redo our theology and let's build a sexuality that's pleasing to the Lord and based on his revealed word to us. So with that, let's pick up then with 6 verse 12. And the word sexual immorality, I've also put this in your notes. Look under Roman numeral 1b. The word soma is the word for body. It's found eight times in this text we're going to read. So obviously Paul is concerned about the body. And we'll see that there is a Christian theology of the body that comes to play here, contrary to the pagan theology of the body. The word porneia, uh, Barton mentioned that to you, that is the word for sexual immorality, and you'll find that twice in the text. But the word porne, uh, in this, these are Greek words obviously, uh, is also found two times. That's the word for prostitute. So in first century Greco-Roman ideology, the word porneia meant prostitution generally. The word uh, is it's misspelled here. The third one I've got there should be porneuo. That's P-O-R-N-E-U-O. And that's a word for practicing sexual immorality. 
uh, and it's found once in this text. So obviously, Paul is talking about porneia, uh, particularly from a Greco-Roman perspective that has to do with prostitution. Now, in Hellenistic Judaism, that would be Greek-speaking Judaism at the time, the word porneia meant everything outside of legitimate marital sexuality. So any, sex, any sexual practice outside of a man and a woman being married was considered porneia. So Paul will use it in both ways. He's speaking of specifically the prostitution that is engaging the Christians in Corinth. And he's also speaking here and elsewhere about a general violation of the sexual mores of the scriptures. So with that, let's look then at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now before we look at this, let's be sure we have theological and spiritual context. Paul has already reminded us of the gospel in chapter 1. And in chapter 6, he has already reminded us that the church is made up of thieves and gossips and homosexual offenders and adulterers and all kinds of folks. So uh, let's just start here. We're all at the same starting point. Everyone here has violated the seventh commandment not to commit adultery, every single person, because we know from what Jesus teaches us that it has to do with the mind as well as your body. No one here can stand on his, on his high horse, on his big platform, and say, you, 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 it's always we. We're all in need of change and repentance, and we all have the solution in Christ. And furthermore, let's remember that God has forgiven us our sins. He has paid the price for all of our sexual immorality. If we belong to him, that is not being held against us. So when we are talking about Christian repentance and Christian sexuality, we may be sorry for the past, but we're generally looking forward. We're looking ahead. And that's what genuine forgiveness and repentance allows us to do. We don't have to worry about the past. Christ is taking care of that. And Christ also is going to take care of our future sins. Now, we will not be presumptuous. We will not say, then, therefore, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want to do. And that's sometimes what the Corinthians were doing. No, because of what he's done, our hearts are moved to seek to obey him. Let's remember the context now. So uh, I don't, I, if we added up all the sexual immorality represented in this room, <laughs> that would be bad, wouldn't it? I don't think anybody has a calculator that goes that high. Uh, so there's a lot of sin. But remember who's paid for it. Now we're talking about what, how do we react to the forgiveness that we've received in Christ? And that's what we're talking about here. That's the reason we want to get our theology straight. If someone has loved us that much to pay for all of our sexual immorality, we want to give ourselves back to him. That's the whole argument of the Apostle Paul here and elsewhere. Now, let's look, first of all, at verses 12 through 14. And the Apostle Paul is just saying, think again. You've got to think again. You're, you're, the theology of your life, the philosophy of your way of life, that's informing your sexual practice is way out of sorts. We got to get that straight. Most scholars think that the way the ESV has it here is correct, that you put those first six words in English in quotations. Now, you, you recognize the Greek language doesn't have quotation marks. So, this is an interpretation. This is what the translators think Paul is doing. Paul is actually quoting them. 
he is saying here. So y'all say, all things are lawful for me. And uh, Paul is saying, yeah, okay, maybe so. But not all things are helpful. And here's the point he's making. Uh, in, uh, we'll see in verse 12, he's saying, you are free to serve. You're not free to indulge. You're free to serve other people. Jesus taught us that the truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 32. So by receiving the truth of the gospel, we are liberated for the first time. We're free from condemnation. And we're free to do what our heart desires, as long as we're desiring Jesus Christ. We're, but we're not free to indulge ourselves in all of our uh, sinful lusts. Actually, we are set free to serve in this world. Now, if we're not here to serve other people, we may as well just go on home. I don't mean back to your house. I mean up here. We may as well go to heaven. It's much more pleasurable. Uh, there are no temptations up there anymore. Let's just get be done with it. But the reason you're here is to serve a purpose for the sake of Christ's glory and the use of other people. So Paul's saying, yeah, something may be lawful, but that doesn't mean you do it. The American idea of freedom is that you can just do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Isn't it great to live in a country like this where you can do what you want to do? I have no argument with that on the civil realm. But when Christians think that's their ultimate definition of freedom or of liberty, they've got a big second thought coming. Because the moral obligation and actually our pleasure in exercising our freedom is to serve other people. And Paul says, you all missed it. Just because in the Greco-Roman world you're free to use prostitutes. That doesn't mean you use them. And just because you're free to do some things in your business and maybe in your comp competition with another person to, to lie or deceive and you could never get caught legally, that doesn't mean you do it. So Paul is arguing, first of all, with their whole idea of freedom. Just because you have opportunity, just because someone's trying to seduce you, for example, doesn't mean that you fall prey to it. So you're free to serve. Uh, secondly, let's look at verses 13 and 14, and we'll see that he teaches them that your body is important. And once again, the translators, I think rightly, see this as a quotation where Paul is saying, so you say, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Now his argument here is not about food. It's about sexuality, but he's using food as an analogy. And he's saying, oh, so, since food is there and it's good, and your stomach is groaning and you're hungry, well, it's just natural. Just eat as much as you want until you get to be about 400 pounds and just keep eating. You say, no, just because you're, you're attracted to food and food is meant to feed your stomach doesn't mean you, you overeat. He's saying, and God will destroy both one and the other. And as a matter of fact, some scholars think that that should also be part of the quotation. That is actually the Corinthians who say, Food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, and they're all going to be destroyed in the end anyway. And the Apostle Paul says, uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He's saying, you've missed something on the body. It's true, stomach and food, they go together. But sexual immorality and the Christian, they don't go together. He said, that's where your analogy breaks down. And he's arguing with those who are using popular, modern arguments to exercise their sexuality the way they want to. The analogy in our day, of course, would be, didn't God make each one of us to be happy? I've had people sit in my office who are having affairs with other people, and they're telling me that God wants them to be happy. And I just can hardly believe what I'm hearing. And I just want to take the, the man by the neck and squeeze it real hard. <laughs> just say, are you, have you lost your mind? That's the way we really think. We really think that we're here to be happy, and anything that makes us or our children happy, that's what we can do. The Apostle Paul says, no, uh, God is not against happiness, but he's against unholiness. And sometimes holiness in the short run makes you unhappy because in the long run it's going to make you very happy. Actually, Christ is Dr. Feelgood. He is, he, is, he is leading you in the way of everlasting joy, but in the short run, it may not feel that way. So long-term gain, short-term pain, often in the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul is saying, here's one place for this. He said, 
the sexual immorality was not meant for the body. The body was not meant for sexual immorality. He says, on the other hand, look at verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, here is the chief argument he's making. In the Greco-Roman world, it was common uh, in pagan ideology to think of uh, God as pure spirit and to think of the body as uh, immaterial. I mean, it's ironic that the material becomes immaterial. But material being was by its nature corrupt in pagan ideology. So what one tried to perfect was one's spirit. It was what we would call Gnostic, that one relates to God only in the mind. And that's the reason that academic pursuit and theology would have been very close together because the only way in which you can really know God and be illumined by him was intellectually. So what the issues of the body were not that important. And I believe the Corinthians are saying, well, the body and the, the stomach and food are both going to be destroyed. And one day the body is going to be destroyed. And so therefore they were saying the body is irrelevant. There's some of that going on in our culture. You know, what difference does it really make as long as you don't hurt somebody else? That's the argument. Paul is saying, hang on just a minute. Christian theology of the body is quite different. And you can see it from the, the Christian eschatology, the Christian view of the end times. You get your body back. Unlike the pagans who believe that just your spirit has what they called, uh, in, you know, the immortality of the soul. The Christian doesn't believe in the immortality of the soul. The Christian believes in the resurrection of the body. So, Paul is making the argument, that means your body is important right now. Because it has an eternal trajectory. And what you do in the body makes a difference. In fact, you see it elsewhere in the Apostle Paul when he speaks about the final judgment. He says, the deeds done in the body. So for Christians, we put it all back together. And the things that we eat, the things that we do sexually, the things that we look at, the things that we say, the places we go, all have spiritual significance and are ethically important. Because we believe in the conjoining of body and soul. That's the way that we were created, and that's our ultimate destiny. When you die and go to heaven, your spirit will go to heaven. You'll be content. But you, from our study in Revelation, we saw this, you will be in heaven. You'll join all the heavenly host, crying out to Christ, how long, O Lord? And why will you say that? You want your body back. You're content in your spirit, but you're undressed. And you want your body back. We're made to have bodies, and Paul is making the argument here. Therefore, be careful what you do with your body. That's the reason, for example, in Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore, I plead with you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, that he has just explained in Romans 1 through 11, the grace of the gospel, in view of those mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So your body is continually put into the service of the Lord. That's the point he's making. Rather than saying it doesn't matter and it's indifferent. And all we need to do is just be mentally worshiping the Lord and spiritually tied to him. He's saying, no, you get tied to the Lord body and soul. So it's a major philosophical discussion. And what you'll find in our culture is the same thing. There is a philosophical war going on that is leading to various sexual practices. It has always been true that one's sexual practice reveals one's theology. It's always been true. For example, when Joshua goes into the promised land, now we're back in the you know, 13th century uh, BC. When Joshua goes into the promised land, he is told very clearly, and he tells the people clearly, not to practice the ways of the, Gentile, of the, of the nations. And what was their practice? They had as many wives as they wanted. They had as much sex as they wanted. As a matter of fact, they had temple prostitutes. They worshiped God by having sex with temple prostitutes. Now, I, I bet you'd get male attendance at church going up if you did that. And they did. They had really good male attendance at church. Uh, and the reason was they're gods. Baal and Ashtaroth were consorts, and when they got it on together, we'd have rain and fertility in the ground. So you go and sacramentally 
practice sex just like you want Baal and Ashtaroth to practice sex and so we can have fertility and crops. That was their ideology. Furthermore, in their ideology, their gods were very fickle. They might be happy with you today and angry with you tomorrow. And you're constantly trying to manipulate them. And those gods could be faithful to you today, but then abandon you tomorrow and be faithful to somebody else. They're very fickle. What Joshua was telling the people, what Moses taught the people, was that your God is not like that. He cuts covenant with his people. He makes a marriage covenant with Israel, with his people. Therefore, your sexuality is to reflect his covenant faithfulness. And your faithfulness to one bride is to reflect his faithfulness to his one bride. Just like the pagans have many brides because their gods have many brides. It's the same in Paul's day. Same ideology with the pagan gods. That's the reason they go to the pagan temples and get prostitutes. It just makes sense. It's reflecting their worldview. Christians, however, are different. Paul is making the same statement in the first century. So when I teach seniors in high school, which I do every spring about things to face in the on the college campus, and it takes about four or five sessions to talk about some of the main points, of course, one of the lectures is on sexuality. And what I say to our high school seniors is, one of your best opportunities to witness has to do with your sex life. Because if you actually follow a Christian uh, sexuality, you are going to be weird. <laughs> Folks are going to think you're frigid or prudish. And eventually, your friends are going to say to you, hey, you've been dating her for five months. How come you, all, you don't spend the night over there every once in a while? And your answer to that question, there's only one answer. It's not because you might get AIDS. I mean, we've got condoms. They, they generally work. It's not because you don't want to get somebody pregnant. It's not because your mama told you because your mama's not there anymore. You only got one answer, and that is that you're in love with Jesus Christ. And because of that love and because of the understanding he's given you about how to love another person, this is the way you're living out your romance. And, boy, is it ever exciting. And is it ever hot? And it is. It's hot and holy at the same time. That's the way that we're made. That's, that's what Christ wants us to be. Because, once again, if Christ is passionately in love with us, are you going to have an indifferent relationship with your fiancé? Not if you're Christian. He's passionately in love with us. So you must get passionately in love with your fiancé. The same kind of sacrifice he makes for us, you're trying to emulate it in your relationship with your fiancé. In the same way that he never took advantage of us, you would not take advantage of your fiancé. So your only explanation, I mean, it's stripped down to this now. Tradition's not going to help you. You, you, can't make a, you can't give a reason that's really plausible to anybody about why you are sexually moral unless you refer to Christ. It's the best way to witness on the college campus because everybody's doing it, seemingly. Everybody else is going in another direction. So if you go the direction of Christ, you have an opportunity to witness. And I always tell the high school seniors, look, it's not just a matter of what you do and what you don't do. It's why you do what you do and why you don't do what you don't do. It's the why that's so important. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's taking them down to the whys. He's saying, he's saying brothers and sisters, life must be lived theologically. You've got to grasp these things. And then it comes out of your heart. That's the whole matter. Now, he's saying then to them, think again about soma, the body, and about porneia, sexual immorality. Think about a Christian perspective on this. Your body is important, and you are free only to serve. Now, look at verses 15 through 17. I've just entitled this, Come on, man! Because uh, <laughs> Paul is, in some ways, he's... He's sort of going over some familiar turf here with him again, but he takes it in a little bit different direction and fleshes out, no pun intended, the theology of Christian sexuality. And here's the point he makes. First of all, conversion makes us one with Christ. Duh. He says, do you not know? He's saying, come on, guys. Do you not know? I've taught you this before. Come on, man. He's saying, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? But he is joined to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. I'm, I'm rearranging these verses a little bit. 15a and 17 together. The point he's making is conversion makes us one with Christ. So, brothers, here's what he's reminding you of and me of. 
When we become Christians, our spirits are united to Him. But our bodies come along with us. And our bodies are actually united to Him too. So our bodies become holy. Holy fundamentally means to be set apart. So your body, if you become a Christian, your body is set apart for His service. It's like being in the, in the military service. Your body is set apart for war. And you wouldn't be in the military service if you didn't intend to give your body for warfare. And that's what your body is for. And if you're a disembodied being, or if you say, well, my body doesn't really matter, you ain't going to be in the military very long. You'll be in prison. Because the military is demanding your body and the use of your body to fight. It's the same way in the Christian life. You join the army, and it includes your body. Your body is united to Christ. It's under the commander-in-chief. He's got, uh, he's got exercise over your, your body, and you're brought into union with him. And I mentioned here John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I mean, how, how clear could it be that the, the ultimate reality of our conversion is we are brought into intimate fellowship with Christ, body and soul. Just as his body is important, and just as he set apart his body, we're told in the epistles, to be a sacrifice to the Lord, he put his body in our service. We're to put our bodies in his service, and we're made one with him. Secondly, in verse 16, Paul says again, or do you not know, come on, man, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written the two will become one flesh. Now, Paul teaches us something here very important. We might even take a little aside here because it's a very important point, and this is a, the text in the Scripture that shows it to us. That the problem with extramarital sexual intercourse is that you are becoming one flesh with someone who's not your wife. It's not just an occasional discharge of your sexual appetite. It's actually coming into union with that person. Just like Moses said, or God said, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when Adam and Eve were brought together, and the two shall become one. A man shall leave his father and mother, and it shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul picks that up here and says that's not only true in marriage. It's true in all sexual intercourse, which leads us, this is an aside, and we won't charge you anything extra this morning, uh, but as an aside, this is the reason that when men take up sexual practice with a woman, there is, it seems, a moral obligation to offer your hand in marriage. Now, the way we handle it here typically is if, let's say, a young couple has been sexually active and they let us know about it, we will advise the man that he has become one flesh physically with a woman and therefore, it's his obligation to offer her legal protection and relational uh, union by marrying her. We dismiss him from the room, and then we say to the woman oftentimes, don't accept his offer. <laughs> but I believe it's the man's obligation. This would come from other texts in Leviticus especially, where there's special rules about sexual immorality and the obligations that devolve upon people, especially the man. It seems that when the man does that, he has taken on an obligation to care for the person with whom he just became one flesh. Because Christian marriage has, or I should say human marriage, has two lines, physical line and a legal line. And the way it's supposed to be done is you seal the legal commitments first before you take the physical privileges. But what sexual immorality does or premarital sex does is to reverse the order. That's the scandal of it, is that you're taking privileges where you've not obligated yourself legally. And that's taking advantage of someone. It's not love. It's, it's abuse. So when you've reversed the order, you just finish the work by taking the legal obligation that goes with it. Now, I believe that's a full-orbed biblical view of sexual obligation on the man's part. And I know that we're a long way from that in our culture and in our churches. But it seems to me that's where we need to be headed so that all men understand that uh, when a certain 
part of your body gets aroused, uh, it's going to involve the rest of your body and the rest of your life. And that's the way it should be. We were made to protect other people, not to take advantage of other people. And when we are having one flesh unions and then leaving the women on the side of the, of the road, we're just taking advantage of one woman after another and not playing the man. The man's to be a defender and a protector. And instead of defending and protecting and providing for, we're just taking advantage of. That's, that's one of the real tragedies of today's sexual practice, is that not only is it dishonoring to the Lord, but it's, it's raping the countryside and taking advantage of the women in our culture. Okay, enough on that. Uh, look at B, verse 16, which we are, and you'll also see that I've quoted there for you the larger catechism. <laughs> if, you ever, <laughs> if, if you ever thought that there was one of the commandments that you hadn't broken, just go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, <clears throat> and you'll find out, man, you've broken up side, down, side, sideways, over and over again. And <clears throat> the Westminster Larger Catechism will not let you get by with a silly statement like that, that you've t- kept the Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice in this Larger Catechism maybe four things. And if you want to make note of these, this is sort of the summary of, of what I think is being said to us. And this all comes from Matthew 5, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us that lust is sexual immorality. It's adultery. That, that adultery is, it, it, there is a physical adultery, but there's also an adultery that begins in the heart. He said, if we lust after a woman, we've committed adultery. The larger catechism picks up on that. And the first thing I want you to notice in the catechism is that it's body and mind. Under question 138, notice that the duties in the seventh commandment are chastity and body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. It's everything. Body and mind. Even in the, uh, under question number 139, uh, it says stage plays next to the last line and all other provocations. So uh, that leads to the second point I want to make, that in a Christian view of sexual immorality, it's not just the act, it's things leading up to the act. So, for example, someone will say to me, well, how far can you go? <laughs> if you're dating. Glad you asked. Here's how far you can go. Only as far as it doesn't provoke you or your mate to the next step. Okay. That just about cut it all out, didn't it? Yep, there you go. I think maybe a kiss on the cheek is about as far as most of you guys can go. Because I know how most of you are, just like me. You know, that long, enduring kiss leads to the other imaginations, things I want to grab and do things to. Uh, and you go from one thing to the next. So here's how far you can go. You can go to whatever step doesn't lead you to want to do the next step. And here's the reason. You're just teasing yourself and your partner. The things you want to know if you can do them, they're called foreplay. And they're not meant to be interrupted. So cut out the foreplay. It's not petting, it's foreplay. The word for means something comes after. So if it is indeed foreplay, then why would you do a prelude when you can't play the symphony? Just cut it out. You're not going to be in that business yet until there's a legal commitment on your part. So it's not only the act, it's the provocations. And so, for example, if you're if you're surfing the internet or you're going to a movie or watching a TV show you shouldn't be watching and it provokes you, that was sin. That's what the larger catechism is saying, I think quite rightly. You're just allowing yourself to be provoked. There is a way that you cannot be provoked. There's a way, gentlemen, because we're Christians. There's always a way of escape. So why don't you use it? Uh, thirdly, notice in the catechism, it has to do not only with you but with others. Very interesting. Uh, under 139... He says, uh, allowing or tolerating or keeping of stews. Stews, by the way, are brothels. Uh, Let's see, there's another one in here. Um, Back up under 138. Uh, Oh, yeah, here it is, second line in 138. And the preservation of it in ourselves and others. And he speaks of keeping chaste company. Now, if you keep chaste company all the time, that means you'll never evangelize anybody, and that's not good. What he's talking about are your deepest soulmates, 
the ones that you share life with, the ones that are, who you're, whom you're imitating. That's your company. Keep Chase company. And you watch out for yourself, and you watch out for your company. And gentlemen, that's the reason for small groups, mentoring relationships, Sunday school classes, other things, Bible studies. It's keeping ourselves chased and everybody else. Now, uh, fourthly, under this, notice in the catechism that there's both negative abstention and positive engagement. And what I mean by that is in under 138, the last phrase, or next to the last phrase, nope, third from the last phrase, he says, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. So if you don't have the gift of celibacy as a single man, you're married, therefore you must engage conjugal love and cohabitation. So positively, we'll see this in our next chapter in 1 Corinthians, sexual morality means you're engaging sexually your wife and you're living with her. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, especially among the Christians, there were some notions, uh, errant notions, that if we're Christians, we don't engage sexually with our wives. I mean, nutty, but we'll find it in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul has to chastise them and tell them to get busy again sexually in their marriages. For that reason, oftentimes the Christians would have in their minds, well, since I'm not having sex with my wife, then I'm free to have sex with the prostitutes or with a girlfriend or a mistress or a concubine. And there are some of you I know who struggle with that. You know, my wife's just not that interested. Or maybe she's got some physical problems and we're just not having sexual relations. And so, therefore, watch yourself. Uh, you, you know, you can be celibate and in a marriage and be sexually moral if it's in service to the partner that you're with. And some of you are single, and some of you who are single would really like not to be single. And you have a discipline upon your lives. You, you guys who are married, let me tell you, you've got a discipline upon your lives too. And it's every bit as rigorous, if not more so, to be loving your wife sexually in a way that pleases her and builds her up rather than satisfying your own lusts. It's so easy, whether you're single or you're married, to think only about the satisfaction of your own desires rather than be thinking about serving other people. So if you're single, you're serving other people with modesty and celibacy and letting everyone know they can, listen, women can read between the lines. They know what you're after. They can tell whether you're being honorable in your intentions or not. So if you guard your heart to be honorable toward everybody else, you're serving them. If you're married, you're serving your wife. That's your number one goal humanly in your sexual morality. And that's what the confession is saying. It's both by abstention and engagement, depending upon our role in life. C, verse 15b, notice, here's the argument the apostle makes. He says, if union with a prostitute makes you one with her, but you as Christians have been converted to be one with Christ, can't you see you can't do both? It's oil and water. You can't be united with Christ and then say, hey, Jesus, do you mind if we just add this unrepentant, uh, sexually active person to our fellowship? That's ridiculous. That's the holy with the unholy. So, Malachi makes the same point in the Old Testament. You can't marry someone who is an unbeliever because you're united to Christ and you're trying to bring someone into the sanctuary, the holy place of God, who is not converted. That's completely inappropriate. And now you're trying to be intimate with Jesus and intimate with this woman. It will not work, says the apostle. And can't you see that it aggrieves the Lord and is impossible? So then let's look at verses 18 through 20 in the last minutes we've got. Here's the point he's making at the end of this text. He's saying, run fast and keep running. And the reason I say that, when he says run fast, it's in the present tense. The present tense in Greek has a continuing implication. So it's keep on running, keep on fleeing from sexual immorality. Now here I mentioned Genesis 39. Joseph is a great example here. Joseph was in Potiphar's household. He had gotten out of... Uh, out of jail, out of prison, uh, because he, he was so outstanding. And he had anything he wanted in Potiphar's house except Potiphar's wife. But unfortunately for him, Potiphar wanted him, wanted Joseph. And she's tried to seduce him, I mean, very strongly. And three times in that chapter, you'll see the word flee, same word that's used here. Joseph fled like a scalded dog. And here's what Paul is saying. 
if you want to maintain your sexual morality, your usefulness, your intimacy with Christ, you're going to have to learn to run. Now, some of us have not had a whole lot of trouble with that <laughs> in terms of affairs. I mean, I know some of you are so handsome and debonair that you, you get seduced all the time. I just hadn't had that problem in my life. And I'm so thankful that God's protected me. But some of you actually do get solicited. I mean, I know one of you uh, who was who single had about three women call you in, in the scope of a month just offering to come over and spend the night. I'm going, now if I were a young man like that and I had those offers and I, and I weren't converted, I know what I would have done. Uh, uh, but being in Christ, we will learn we flee. You get off that phone as fast as you can get off of it. You can say something nice if you want to, but don't make it too nice and get off that phone. And, you know, if you're, if you're looking at your computer screen and you're tempted and you're in the room by yourself, just get out of that seat and run and get into company where your, your computer screen is being seen by other people or a television program or a movie or is it a relationship that you know has something in it that's a little bit too close, it's closer than it should be. And sometimes men are a little too kind in the wrong ways. You know what I mean? And other men can usually pick it up. You're being a little too sweet to the wrong person. Run like a scalded dog. You don't want to let anybody, you, you know, if you're dealing with the devil, you do not want to expose your weaknesses. It's like if you're fighting warfare, you don't advertise where the weakest part in your line is. And so you cover that up and you get out of there. You've got to learn to flee from evil. Now, you don't flee from the devil. You confront the devil with the word of God. But you flee from evil. And you flee from sexual immorality. Just like Joseph, run out of there. You're in danger. And you're not stupid. And so you're getting out. That's what he's saying. Because two big, fundamental, theological arguments here. Gentlemen, sex is theological. I'm sorry. It is. If sex, if your single sex life or your marital sex life is lived out robustly, it's going to be very theological. And here's the reason. The Apostle Paul says in verse 19, Come on, man, don't you know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Your body is a temple. It's housing God. You know, any shrine that I've ever been to around the world for any religion is considered a holy place. And the, the adherents to that religion do not want you to show disrespect in any way. And there are guards, and there are people, and there are customs and traditions, and you have to you know, not do this and do do that. And it's very, uh, very uh, regulated. Here's what Paul is saying. Do you not realize your body is a shrine? It is the place where the Spirit of God is dwelling. Don't corrupt it. Don't show it disrespect. Why? If you show your body disrespect, you're showing disrespect for your religion, which is showing disrespect for the God who lives inside your heart. That's the main purpose of your body, is to be the place where Jesus Christ is dwelling. That's the first argument. The second argument is this. Not only is, are, are you a temple of the Holy Spirit, but you actually are a possession of God. He owns your body. You don't own it. Now, in marriage, we're going to see in chapter 7, Paul makes the argument that in marriage, actually, your body belongs to you and to your spouse. And men forget this. When you, when you go into marriage, you, you put your body in slavery to serve the woman, not to serve yourself. But whether you're married or single, something that trumps that is this. Your body is in the service of God. He owns you. He says here, he bought you with a price. What was the price? The spilt blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? That your body was purchased. Fair trade. You belong to the devil. And you got sold to the Lord. You got bought by the Lord. And the Lord provided the payment price, the blood of his own son. You don't belong to yourself. You... Civilly, you have the right to do with your body what you want to do as long as you don't break the civil law. Morally, you don't have the right. You have a civil freedom, but you have a moral obligation always to use your body in service to the Lord because it belongs to Him. Once again, I think the military analogy is a good one. Once you sign up 
Once you're engaged in battle, you don't decide where you're going to go, which enemy you're going to engage. The commanding officer decides that. Your body belongs to the nation. That's what Paul is arguing here. What is needed is not just zip it up. What's needed is think deeply, reflect carefully, and worship continually. Then your sex life becomes truly an act of worship to God. That's the bottom line. So we need to sanctify. They needed to in Corinth. We need to here because we have all kinds of cultural ideas that are built upon the uh, absence of God that are encouraging us to engage sexual practices that are not serving our neighbor and are not honoring to the Lord, and that's the one to whom we belong. That's the argument Paul is making. So in your small groups and in your mentoring relationships this week, please take a good look at the questions that are being asked, especially the going deeper questions, and take this week to build your own theology and practice of your own sexuality and how you're going to manage that until you draw your last breath in a way that honors God. And finally, let me just say this. Look, we're not stupid. And we're not doing this because we're giving up something. We're doing this because we're getting everything. And when you get to the end of the day, I, I don't mean this in an irreverent way, but heaven, paradise, is going to be much better than, than 400,000 orgasms. Uh, there's no comparison between whatever little dinky sexual pleasure you think you're getting here and the pleasure that Christ has stored up for us. And our willingness and ability to delay gratification reflects our trust in the promise of God that he's going to give us these things, that we're going to be fully happy, that we're going to be so intimate relationally with other people and especially with Christ that we'll look back on this as five-year-olds in the playground who had no idea of what real pleasure was. So we do this out of a sense of joy and eager anticipation and Listen, we're the wisest people on the face of the earth. We've made a trade. And we've traded the pleasures that are promised to us in this life by the evil one for chastity here and full pleasure later. And we know it's coming. Now, God does give us pleasures in this life, and we're grateful for it. But it's not to be compared with what he's stored up for his people. So that's the reason that we're rigorous. We love him and we trust him. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the gift of our bodies. Thank you for making us body and soul. It's an amazing thing, the way you've made us. Forgive us for the many, many ways in which we've abused our privileges and abused our bodies and abused other people's bodies. Uh, we know it grieves you, and we, we hear your word even today calling us out of this into a new way of living. And we pray that you'll help us. Help us to be honest with each other in our small groups. Help us to pray for and encourage each other. And help us, Lord, to set a model that causes people to ask, what is it about you folks that will enable us to share the gospel of Christ who loves us and gave himself for us and in whose name we pray. Amen.